It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. So, where have you kept the award then? It's on the mantelpiece. Nice, good yes. choice, classic. Definitely. I think you either go mantelpiece, you can go doorstop, or you can go next to the toilet. Those, yeah, those are the three exactly. classics. But when I get a sort of whole fistful, then I can then some of them can go in the toilet. In case people did don't know, this is the award we won at the British Press Guild. Yeah, the Broadcasting of the year. Press Guild Awards last week. And then we went off to celebrate in Austria. We did. We went on our first holiday together, exactly. Ed and myself, because they say that is a big test of, of any relationship. relationship. You know, you've, you've been together a certain amount yeah. of time. Six and, months in yeah. our case. Yeah, and then you go away and you see how it holds up. Yeah, I think it you went know? pretty well, didn't I it? I think so too. Yeah. We were at a, um, a radio conference called Radio Days Europe, in Vienna. And we did a nice little turn about podcasting. We did. We did. That was very enjoyable. And as well as that, we got to go to the City Hall. Yes. The, the Rathus. And we're going to be hearing from uh, Mr. Czernohoski. The reason for we went to interview him is that Vienna, in fact, the day after, Jeff, we interviewed him, was voted for the ninth successive year as the best city in the world to live in. You could have a second chapter in Austria. You think so? They, think they seem a... to really like you over there. Yeah, I don't think, I think... I'm not sure they wanted me to run for Chancellor of Austria. <laughs> um, so we're going to be talking this week about the idea of wealth funds, essentially government or so-called sovereign wealth funds. The best way of explaining this is that Norway used the money from its North Sea oil, not in the way that Britain did to sort of spend each year, but to put the money aside and since doing that, that fund, and it's mainly invested in the stock market, is now worth over $1 trillion. I mean, that's just a, a huge amount. It's more than 1%. They own more than 1% of the world's stock market. Wow. And um, 
the 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 advantage of that i suppose is a couple of things i mean first of all it's mo- government putting money aside for a rainy day which is one of the ways the norwegians think about it but secondly stock market wealth has tended on average to grow more quickly than the growth rate of the economy as a whole and therefore it's a way of government making sure that it has a share of that on behalf of the people and now some people in Britain are saying, well, we should establish one of those funds and we should use it to 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 then use the proceeds or the interest um, to redistribute wealth among the population because wealth inequality is a massive problem. It, it's m- much bigger than the, the in- income inequality in our country, the gap between rich and poor in terms of their you know, annual income. Uh, the, the amount of wealth people have, the, the, the divide there is, is much bigger. So there are some ideas around, and we're going to be talking about them, for how you can use one of these sovereign wealth funds as a way to make the distribution of wealth in our country fairer. And Goopgate continues. <laughs> Your thoughts on that? Yes, for those who don't know, Goopgate is all about the perilous sandwich situation uh, across our country and what can be done about all of the goop. That, and and we've, had a, we've been flooded with, with goop, goop, people who are on my side on, on Goopgate. I mean, I'm I'm just brainstorming here, but how's this for an idea? You launch your chain of make-your-own-sandwich shops. Yeah. They become nationalised, and the profit from that goes into some kind of Good sovereign idea. wealth fund. Yeah, you're onto something. Do you still feel confident in your own business idea? Yeah, I'm not sure I'd want to sort of bet the farm for the whole nation <laughs> on them. But I think it's it's got something going for it. Uh, so do you have a reason to be cheerful? Yes, I do. I'll read you from the New York Times, and I think this will explain why I'm cheerful about this. This is a story of a little gay bunny. A little gay bunny who belongs to Vice President Mike Pence. A little fictional gay bunny. This is a story of Marlon Bundo, the Instagram star and real-life pet of the Vice President's family, who's also the subject of two dueling children's books released this week. So basically, the daughter of Mike Pence, the Vice President of the United States, uh, wrote a book called Marlon Bundo's Day in the Life of the Vice President. And it's a picture book uh, that focuses on Mike Pence's rabbit, right? right? I don't have a rabbit, but I mean, surely I should have done this. I might have been a great success. But then John Oliver, who presents the show last week tonight on HBO, decided that he would write a rival book uh, about a gay romance between two bunnies. Uh, And so far, that book is the most popular of the two. Now, it should be said that one of the reasons he did this, and the proceeds are going to charity, one of the reasons that, that John Oliver did this is that Mike Pence's views on homosexuality are pretty rebarbative, really, because there's been this whole controversy about whether he supports gay conversion therapy and all of that stuff. John Oliver has decided to engage in some one-upmanship, and there's this book that he's written called The Day in the Life of Marlon uh, Bundo, and it's already sold 180,000 copies as of wow. this article. So there there you go. That's great. So that's quite good, isn't it? It's He's quite, brilliant, John Oliver. Yeah, he is brilliant. Um, my reason to be cheerful this week is I, I just came from a thing this morning. I was on um, a panel about laughter in the workplace. Right. And I was on there with um, a former colleague of mine called Sue Todd, who works in media marketing for the magazine industry. And then Professor Sophie Scott, who did a wonderful TED Talk on laughter. Um, Paul Coleman, who created the Peter Kay car share show on the BBC. And then Bruce Daisley, who is the managing director of Twitter in this country. But he also hosts uh, a podcast 
about workplace culture. And um, he, he gave a great fact that, so, you know, booze in British companies has been a big part of the culture. And, you know, if people think about the fun they have at work, it's often, you know, when they've been to the pub and, and yeah. so on. Yeah. And and that's changing, and especially millennials. So to replace that um I forget the name of the company, but a company that he talked to have introduced something called Crisp Thursday, where employees are encouraged to bring in different types of crisps every Thursday. And then it's like a wine tasting only with crisps. That's a good idea. Yeah. maybe. I think we do a lot better than other countries on flavours of crisps. That is my observation. Uh The Americans tended to, to, from my observations there, tend to be quite limited in flavours of crisps. Mm. What's your favourite flavour of crisps? Well, you know, I'm a salt, I think I'm a salt and vinegar guy. I do like the classics. I really don't like salt and vinegar. It's the one I don't like. We found our incompatibility. <laughs> uh, it's a good job you didn't buy some salt and vinegar Pringles on the plane. Isn't it? Um, yeah. No, I like cheese and onion, but I really don't like salt and vinegar. Well, in the same way as this podcast, I think, sometimes reaches across the political divide, we are reaching across the cheese and onion salt and vinegar divide. Yeah, Monster Munch. You're not a fan? No, remember, we're going to do word association. <laughs> oh, right. Square crisps. Um, salt and shake Space Raiders Frazzles I'm not sure this is word association more than it is just naming crisps What's the association of crisps? Frazzles Nerves Nerves? Well, you said it's word association so it's it's either, it's either word association no, get, stay with the So crisps. I've got frazzled nerves or it's just naming crisps No, keep going until he wins <laughs> You consider this to be a game Yeah Okay KP skips Big D peanuts <laughs> A peanut is not a crisp. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> it all came to mind. Mini cheddars. Um, scampi fries. Um, Bovril flavoured crisps. Prong cocktail flavoured crisps. Um, oh, I think you might have got me. You could have had hedgehog flavoured crisps. I thought of that, but then I thought that was too absurd. Oh, oh uh, quavers. Hey, I'll tell you what, it's easy to see why they gave us that award, isn't it? <laughs> Quavers. Hula hoops. Oh, good one. Don't say I've got you when it took you 30 seconds to come up with bovril-flavoured <laughs> crisp. Um, Pringles. Estrella. What? They're a type of crisp. Nachos. McCoys. I mean, basically you're too good at this game. I tip my hat to you. <laughs> You found your true talent. You can win crisp word association anytime. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're joined now by Angela Cummine, who is an author of a book called Citizens Wealth, Why and How Sovereign Funds Should Be Managed by the People for the People, and is an academic expert on these issues. Angela, thanks so much for joining us from Australia. Great to be here. Let me ask you, first of all, if you can just give us the basics. What is a sovereign wealth fund? Well, as its name suggests, it's a pot of public wealth that the government owns and controls and it invests in financial markets for a return. So it's it's basically like um, a, a big savings and investment account that you might have as an individual, but in this case, it's in the government's hands and it's full of assets and yeah. um, your underlying reserves that uh, are usually sitting in the public coffers. And we'll come on to some of the contemporary issues about these things, but what's the history of this uh, idea and, and, and so why has it been advocated in the past? Well, the idea of the Sovereign Wealth Fund is actually quite um, a, a long-running one, although it's only entered the 
public discourse in the last 10 years, but some of the oldest funds date back to the 19th century. So we had a couple of funds set up in, in Texas um, and one in France after Napoleon raided the public coffers there and the French state wanted to set up a fund that would, would stop an individual leader raiding uh, the treasury. But it's really only been in the last 10 years that many governments around the world have started to cotton on to this idea and realise that it's quite a powerful tool of economic policy and, um, and a disciplined way to help save. So more and more states of quite evenly spread across the world have been setting these funds up either on the back of large commodity surpluses or a big increase in their central bank reserves in the case of some of the East Asian states. Why might it be the case that governments want this? Because the way we think about governments normally is they get in the taxes, they spend the money, maybe they're in deficit, maybe they're in so-called surplus. Why might governments want to essentially have a stake in the stock market? Really two reasons. Um, One is that over the last 40 years, the share of national income that's been going to capital rather than labour has been increasing. And so if, if governments can gain some exposure to that redistribution of our national income, that's a good thing for governments and communities. But the second thing is that uh, many governments around the world are facing long-term challenges to their public purse. They need to come up with new ways of bringing in revenue to the public coffers and they need to try and help close the rising gap uh, between revenues that are coming in but unfortunately much larger expenses going out. So this is a another way, uh, or not a new source but maybe an underappreciated source uh, for contemporary governments to try to tap into to to help close that gap that's only going to increase over time between revenues and expenses. Some of the more powerful examples of, of where sovereign funds have been set up and, and do really connect with their citizen owners uh, are in Alaska and Norway uh, and New Zealand. So Alaska is the only sovereign fund in a world that pays a portion of its returns directly to citizens as a cash dividend. And that comes from Alaskan oil. Is, is that paid out to citizens as a dividend? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And it's, um, it's a return that's averaged out over the last five years. So that tries to control for the fact that you know markets fluctuate, returns will go up and down. But the Alaskan government thought it was important that citizens every year had a link to their funds, that they could both monitor the performance of the fund and feel that they had a stake in it. So when they go to pay the dividend, they average out how the fund has performed over the last five years and then divide that by the number of people in the state and then you get your your per capita share, just like a company dividend. And that's literally posted out to you as a check each year or electronic transfer. You don't know how much that tends to be, do you? Yeah, it's oscillated between uh, about a thousand US dollars and at its peak about two and a half thousand over the last 15 years. It's been going since about 1982. But yeah, in in the last 15 years with higher oil prices, the fund has become very large and performed very well. And so it's quite a sizable dividend. So, you know, across a, a family of um, four or five, you, you're talking uh, you know, $10,000 extra into the, the household budget each year, which is, is a pretty significant sum. And do these sovereign wealth funds tend to be set up when a country or a state is running a surplus, 
when when there's already money to to put aside for them? It's definitely best practice to make sure that the government is in surplus because then you're encouraging the savings that are accumulated to be actual savings. There are some examples of of funds that have been set up um, based on the back of of debt, uh, and that's a sort of new and emerging model that's mainly been tried out in, in Asia. But in terms of making sure that we aren't passing on too much of a, a burden to future generations, ideally, if you can have your government in surplus when you set these funds up, that's ideal. Talk to us about the Norwegian example, because people may not know, but Norway can, can control something like, is it 1% of the world's um, sort of wealth that's, that's invested in stock markets through their fund? Yeah, exactly right. So Norway is the largest sovereign wealth fund in the world. It's recently um, surpassed $1 trillion in value. And it's particularly famous for not only that impressive level of, of equity ownership that you just mentioned, but also for its ethical investment. So it's got a very strong set of responsible investment guidelines, largely as a, a product of a few more controversial investments that it made early on in its life, much to the displeasure of Norwegian citizens. And it realised that to, to really feel like a fund that Norwegians had a stake in, it had to earn its returns in a way that citizens approved of. So these strong ethical guidelines are now in place and are, are the most um, demanding of any sovereign fund in the world. There's a dedicated ethics council that reviews all of its holdings. And um, that fund is really therefore at the forefront of the responsible investment movement globally and really gives citizens a sense that they are actually uh, influencing the allocation of the fund's assets. Now, now, the context in the UK, Angela, is, as you probably know, that we've got very deep wealth inequality. It's it's something like double the levels of income inequality, and that's likely to get worse in the future. Do you think that a sovereign wealth fund could play a role in countering some of that tendency towards wealth inequality? Yeah, absolutely. So I think sovereign funds and, you know, ideally uh, citizens' funds, if if you set up your sovereign fund so it really operates in the interests of citizens, can tackle inequality in two senses. Most of them attempt to store and capture and preserve a portion of public wealth in perpetuity. So in it's by definition, they are funds that try to promote intergenerational equality and transfer some of the gains of today to citizens of tomorrow. But you might miss out part of the equation in that, which is tackling some massive inequality issues in the here and now and uh, inequality that exists sort of intragenerationally today. And sovereign funds can play a role in tackling that inequality as well. In a more radical model, you could actually set them up in a way that helps redistribute uh, the balance of public and private wealth. So um, some of the more radical suggestions around are seeding a a fund in the UK, for instance, by diluting uh, existing share ownership uh, and using those proceeds to, to set up a fund. Or you could actually just hypothecate a portion of the fund's returns and use them for a redistributive program uh, to citizens today. What are the key elements that you would recommend for if we did a British sovereign wealth fund? What are the key elements you'd recommend for that? Well, any sovereign fund that's set up that wants to be 
in essence, a citizen's fund, not just a fund for the government, but a fund really for the people, has to do three things. It has to be managed in a way that's transparent and accountable such that citizens can understand what it's doing and feel that they have a degree of influence over how it behaves. It has to invest in a way that citizens identify with uh, and at a very minimum not contradict other areas of government policy, but more ambitiously start to move towards that Norwegian model of actually reflecting the values that are within the, that community of citizens that own the fund. And the third thing is to try to use the returns of a fund so that they actually benefit citizens. There's a number of different ways of doing that. You could do the Alaska dividend model. You could do a Norwegian uh, transfer model where they take a portion of the fund's returns and uh, transfer that directly back into the budget each year. Singapore does something like that as well. Uh, or you can make sure that the fund tries to um, invest in a way that helps boost economic development domestically. So there are a number of different ways to make sure that funds benefit citizens through the use of their returns. I think the interesting thing about this conceptually is what what you've just said shows that there are funds that come into government in sort of lumps. So, for example, we had, you know, something like £500 billion of North Sea oil. It was spent on current uh, spending. It wasn't invested in a fund. You've We've had previous spectrum auctions. One of them under the Labour government was used to pay off debt. What you're sort of saying is that there's a sort of conceptual leap that we need to make in this, which is when you get that kind of windfall for government – it should be invested, not just spent, basically. Exactly right. So I think you can actually, um, in, in the most ambitious version of these funds, do both things. So if paying down debt or debt reduction is a priority for government, there are some interesting models around for how you can use the corpus of these funds to actually net off your gross debt. So that's something that Quebec, for instance, has looked at doing and actually set up through its Quebec Generations Fund. It doesn't actually pay down its debt per se, but the balance of the fund that it has there is used to reduce the overall debt for Quebec. So that's an interesting model. At the same time, it's investing and building the corpus over time. And you could actually then take some of the returns that you get uh, off that netting off fund for current day spending. Not something that Quebec does at present, but that would be a model that a country um, like the UK that might be interested in both reducing its debt, but also trying to generate new revenue streams for government could look to adapt uh, in Britain. I, I hate to even ask this question, but if you had to explain to the sort of layperson the way this debt thing works, how, how does that work? Well, I mean, it's just literally like uh, if you had your um, bank account and you have some savings, um, but you also have your credit card with a, a big chunky debt on it, um, you might try to build up more of your savings so that you look at when you want to pay your credit card debt off and you think, all right, well, at the point in time, I actually want to get rid of that debt. I'm not going to do it right now because it doesn't actually work for me today to do that. I need more liquidity today. But I'm building up this big corpus in my savings account just so that scary credit card debt doesn't look quite as bad. It's exactly the same principle that, that Quebec is using, but they, they still need to actually use that 
that money in another sense for today. Now, we might think this idea is an idea of the left, but am I right in thinking that Adam Smith, the famous economist who, who talked about free markets, was one of the originators of this idea? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So I think he's, he's often not given, given enough credit, but um, he was the first to properly distinguish between this idea of the sort of revenue of the people and a fund belonging peculiarly to the sovereign were his exact words. And it was something that was sort of lost um, in the wealth of nations. It wasn't picked up, that distinction, for a very long time. But today I think it has um, cross-spectrum appeal amongst political parties. So you've seen governments of, of all different stripes introduce and set up these funds for very different reasons. Um, some more conservative governments often find this very attractive in, in terms of a sort of fiscal um, responsibility tool or something that encourages savings, um, long-term planning in terms of those intergenerational pressures on spending, and governments that are on the sort of left of centre and more progressive leanings really like this as a tool uh, for redistribution potentially uh, or just equality ameliorating measures and community building uh, ethos. So it really does have a a cross-spectrum appeal. And final question, we have a thing here on the podcast which is called the Jeffocracy. It's what I like to think of as a utopian future where I am the supreme leader. If I was to appoint you minister for setting up a sovereign wealth fund, what what is the first thing you would do on day one? (laughs) I would get out there and start explaining to citizens why it is that government doesn't own any of the assets it actually holds on their behalf and why everything that the government has in its coffers is actually theirs and that's why they need to have a proper stake in it. Angela, thank you so much for joining us. That was really brilliant. Thank you so much. Not at all. Can talk about this all day long. We're joined now by Karis Roberts, who is a senior economist at the IPPR and author of the forthcoming paper, Our Common Wealth, a Citizens' Wealth Fund for the UK. Karis, hello. Hi, Jeff. So can you start off by telling us about the scale of the wealth inequality problem that we have in this country and how it impacts on uh, you know, everyone's life? Sure. So households in the UK hold wealth in property, in financial assets, in pensions, um, and also physical wealth. And the UK is a really rich nation. We have £12.8 trillion worth of wealth in UK households. But that's very unevenly divided. So to give you an indication, the top 10% of households own 44% of the nation's wealth, whereas the bottom 50%, that's half of people, own 9%. So it's really starkly divided, and that's particularly true of financial wealth, so things like savings, uh, stocks and shares, financial assets. And that's not true of comparable countries generally? It's true that other countries increasingly are starting to resemble the UK, but in the past we've always been a bit of an outlier in having high wealth inequality. Uh, There are also some quite specific things about the UK economy that make it more unequal. So, for instance, increasingly home ownership is out of reach for lots of people because we have really high house prices in this country. So that's making wealth inequality worse. And how did we get to here? What caused it? Well, to understand what's going on there, one important thing to understand is that as a country we, we produce output uh, we have a national income and some of that is distributed to people in the form of wages so that goes to workers but other and um, the other part of national income goes to people who own capital so that's businesses you might own uh, shares in businesses um, as well as machinery and that goes to them in the form of profits and what we've seen since the late 1970s 
is that the proportion of our national output that's going to workers in a form of wages is going down. So more of the pie is going to the people who own capital. That wouldn't be a problem if everyone could own capital. But actually in the UK, as I've said, financial wealth is very unequally distributed. So that means that we're increasingly seeing the wealthy who own capital getting more of the pie. So that's the scale of the problem. Can you tell us what some of the possible solutions are to this? Sure. So in the context of the proportion of income going to workers declining, there are a few things you can do. You can try and reverse that decline. So you can have collective bargaining, for instance, uh, through trade unions trying to push up the amount of income that goes to workers. Um, You can try and slow the growing gap uh, between people who own capital and those who don't, for uh, for instance, through the tax system. So you could tax capital more effectively. At the moment, we don't do that very well. The rate of tax on capital gains, for instance, is lower than the tax that everyone pays when they go out to work. And the third is that actually to say if taxing wealth is difficult, we could spread around the capital more fairly so that everyone can own wealth and receive an income from it, not just a few people. Uh, And there are a few different ways you can do that, uh, which we can talk about in more detail. But that includes um, helping people to own the businesses that they work for through employee ownership, uh, collectives and mutuals. But it also includes the potential for a sovereign wealth fund or a citizen's wealth fund. And that's what our report is looking at. Are those two things different, a sovereign wealth fund and a citizen's wealth fund? They are, yeah. So lots of countries have set up sovereign wealth funds, but a citizen's wealth fund is a specific kind. And it's saying rather than the government owning this fund, it's owned by citizens and therefore the citizens should have control of how it's invested, uh, how it's grown and also how the rewards are spent. And, and what does that mean? So say, say we had a citizens' wealth fund, mm-hmm. you know, we, we can't have a referendum every time they're deciding whether they should put, buy some Marks and Spencer shares or they should put it no. in Ugandan <laughs> government bonds. Like what, what, what does that mean, the citizens having more control of it? So the way we think that could work is firstly through having a a kind of right to share in the proceeds, um, which could only be changed through legislation, so not just at the whim of a politician at any time, but also in terms of setting democratically setting restrictions on what the fund could invest in. So, for instance, lots of funds now place restrictions on investment in arms manufacturers and tobacco companies uh, and environmentally damaging uh, business activities because we don't want to generate income if that's what it takes. We'd rather operate within the ethical constraints set by society. So it's like your country's values and um, Norway is an example of this are reflected in what you invest in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And is one way of thinking about this if we had in the past put our North Shore revenues into stocks and shares, it would have then created a fund which we could have then used the dividends from. Is that right? For for, for certain purposes? Exactly. So if we'd invested the returns that the government received from oil revenues in the 1980s, we would have actually had a fund worth £500 billion today. And that's because it would have earned interest and it would have grown uh, commensurate with that interest. Um, what that would have done is spread out that income over several generations rather than saying, OK, people in the 1980s, you can have a tax cut, you can uh, have increased spending. We're going to spread out, spread that out so that all generations can benefit from our shared 
oil wealth. And is that the big difference, just taking, just carrying on with that idea of the North Sea oil? So it was spent year by year. You're saying it could have been invested in in uh, the stock market, uh, mm-hmm. and presumably. W- w- the one difference is you obviously keep the, the fund available for future generations. Mm-hmm. But presumably there's another difference, which is that government is sort of sharing the rising wealth of the stock market with that money. Is that mm-hmm. right? Exactly. Uh, so particularly since the crash, we've actually seen the return on equities being incredibly high. The stock market, in other words, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So if we had been investing money, we would have got a return that was quite a lot higher than the opportunity cost of putting that money into investment. So the principle here is government as a sort of expression of of, of the citizens in general shares in the growing sort of wealth of the country and then gets to do something with that money, yes? Yes. Um, now, how might we raise the money to do that in the future? Because the North Sea oil revenue, revenue is unfortunately more or less gone. Mm-hmm. So we don't have the sort of Norway option in the same way. So how might we raise that money? So it's true that we missed our opportunity with North Sea oil, uh, but we do have other assets that it would be good to keep as assets on the public balance sheet and potentially new assets as well as revenues that we could raise. So we think that a mixture of these sources of income and of assets could generate a fund worth approximately 190 billion in 2030. And that would come from a range. So you could, for instance, transfer the remaining RBS shares that the government holds into the fund. Uh, you could transfer uh, the Crown Estate into the fund. And, and just on this RBS point, I mean, mm-hmm. the, the government's saying it's going to make quite a lot of money on, on mm-hmm. those shares already. It's got it written into its to its future figures, hasn't it? It's the tens of billions, is that right? Yes, so it's about 29 billion, I think, at the moment. And some of that they've got plans for, so you'd need to you know, adjust sure. something accordingly. But other, other parts of it they don't have sure. plans for. But then in terms of, so we missed out on North Sea Oil, but there might be future assets which could generate income for us. So in particular, Spectrum sales, uh, they've previously raised billions um, and we will be doing new Spectrum auctions in future. So we have existing public assets, which we might want to put in one fund to be better managed. So those, for instance, include the Crown Estate. Uh, there's approximately £13 billion. And just explain what the Crown Estate is to people. I had a little bit of experience of the Crown Estate when I was the uh, Energy Secretary um, mm-hmm. uh, because they were doing some funding of offshore wind projects. But but just explain a bit what the, the Crown Estate is basically the money of the sovereign of, of the Queen. Yeah. So it's essentially the Queen's wealth that she has gifted to the people and we then pay her some money back out of. So we're still, you know, short of destroying the monarchy, we'd need to keep paying some money back mm-hmm. to her, but we could put that money into this fund to generate um, potentially a stronger income in a bigger fund. But there are other sources as well. So some of the, we've been looking at new taxes that could potentially fund a sovereign wealth fund. One of those is a script tax which is an idea that was discussed a lot in Sweden in the 1970s. And it would ask firms to issue new shares uh, in order to put it into the Sovereign Wealth Fund. So say you issue 3% of shares and we'll use that for our fund. Um, And that would directly provide the fund with a stake in lots of different businesses. And if your business, you're going to think that sounds pretty uh, awful, but presumably is this Corporation tax is very low in mm-hmm. the United Kingdom. It's heading towards 17% at the moment, mm-hmm. uh, the current plans. Is this, this is a way of taxing corporations perhaps in a slightly different way? Is that right? 
It's slightly different. It dilutes shareholder wealth rather than asking them to give their working capital. Our work has shown that actually UK businesses could withstand a little bit of an extra corporation tax. As you say, it's low compared to other countries and historically. So a small script tax would allow a substantial size for the fund. One of the other most important taxes that we think could fund the Sovereign Wealth Fund is actually looking at taxes on wealth. Uh, So with increasing wealth inequality, as I said, one of the ways to address that is to tax wealth more effectively. And in particular, one way that we think would be very promising is reforming inheritance tax. Uh, So reforming it into a gift tax that's harder to avoid throughout your life. And putting that into a fund would be saying, we're going to take people's inheritance and share it more fairly between people who all benefit from the fund. Just explain what a gift tax is. A gift tax is a tax when you receive a gift from a family member or from anyone else. So it's taxed on the person receiving the gift, not the person giving the gift. Um, And you would pay tax on any gift throughout your life, not just when someone dies. So at the moment, if if I had a million pounds, I could just give it to my son. And providing I didn't die within a, a few years, he doesn't pay any tax on that. Exactly. Right. So seven years is the limit. There's some of the ideas about raising the money. What would you then say could slash should be done with the money? I mean, it could just sit there as a as a source of um, uh, government funds. But what what have you got ideas about what would be done with the money? Yeah, so we've worked out that looking at comparable sovereign wealth funds, most of them generate around 4% after inflation in the long term. So looking at a kind of 10 to 20 year time. So that's frame. what they call a 4% return. That's the annual amount exactly. they get back each year. Yes. The 4% real yeah. return. And that's about seven and a half billion a year, looking at the size of fund that we are 190 billion by 2030. There are a number of things you could do with that. You could put it into current expenditure, for instance, um, to go towards public services. But the option that we think is really exciting is actually giving that money directly back to citizens. So saying everybody can have a share of that return, just like if you owned capital individually that you'd get income from it um, and give pay that out in a dividend. And the structure that we think that should take is to pay to all young people uh, a one-off lump sum dividend. That includes you, Jeff. Being a young person. Yeah. Yeah. Does that not just sort of screw up the market? Is it if you give everybody ten thousand pounds, doesn't it just make all property? This would be twenty-five year olds. You give ten thousand pounds to one idea. Yes, exactly. Um, Well, if you look at the moment, what we do, we give people money in the form of benefits, and we we aren't concerned about how that's screwing up the market. We give that to them how they like to spend it, and at the moment, we also give people wealth in the form of the help to buy scheme, which gives people money uh, for a house. That only helps people who can get a mortgage. What we're saying is that whether you get wealth shouldn't depend on your ability to get a mortgage. Everybody should get a £10,000 payment to do as they will. And just to give a context to this, you used the figures earlier about the net wealth figures for each, into percentage terms for the population. If you think about it for in terms of the actual amount each member of the population has, this will make a huge difference. Exactly. So in the bottom 50% of households in the UK, they have an average of £3,200. So receiving £10,000. An average of £3,200 of wealth. 
Of wealth, exactly. £10,000 will have a really transformative effect for those people. And particularly for young people as they're starting out in life. It's 25 is the time when you're looking to invest in your future. You might want to start saving towards a house. You might want to invest in education, perhaps pay off debts, even just get a computer so that you can start a business. When we look at successful businesses, the shared feature of entrepreneurs is actually that they had capital with which to start that business. So having bit of money at the beginning of your life can just enable opportunity in a way that a small amount of income wouldn't. And what would you say to people who say, look, it's just a sort of windfall of £10,000 money for nothing for all these 25-year-olds like Jeff? <laughs> I'd say this is our collectively owned wealth and it's people's right to see the benefits of that money. And when other people, wealthy people, will give money to their children. We don't say that's money for nothing. We accept that as a valid thing to do. Um, Likewise, when people see increases in their wealth, we don't say that's money for nothing. That's a valid part of the economy. So I would say it's the 25-year-old's right to receive that income um, and they can do with it as they will. And I think I'm right in saying that this dates back to, is it Thomas Paine, the radical pamphleteer? Yes, Who first proposed this citizen's dividend in the 18th century. Yeah, and that was based on the premise that we all collectively own the land and so we should all uh, benefit from the returns to the land. And how transformative do you think the effect of this could be on the wealth inequality and all of those issues? I think it could be very transformative. So at the moment, the situation we have is that some young people will enter adulthood and will go through their adult lives with money from their parents and money from their grandparents, and they will have that inheritance. What this would do is say that actually everyone should have this minimum amount of inheritance. It would also, I think, change the way that people thought about our economy and our wealth. It would say, uh, actually, we all own a stake in this and we all deserve um, a return. And potentially, as as the fund developed, if it owned more of the economy, we could start seeing ele- greater elements of the public having control over the economy and actually deciding what happens with with those businesses that the public's invested in. And there's something here, isn't there, about just going back to this North Sea oil analogy that, you know, Norway put its money to aside in order to benefit the country and have now got a trillion dollars worth of wealth fund we spent it sort of every year and now it's gone. And there's something about sort of investing for the future in this, isn't there? Definitely. People will have seen in the news that intergenerational inequality is a big issue at the moment. Uh, Some young people just won't see the kinds of stable incomes and wealth that their parents did. So what this is saying is we will save some of that wealth that we have generated as a country and make sure that future generations and everyone in those future generations can benefit from it. Karis, thank you so much. And just so people can read the full uh, proposals when they come out, when should they be expecting that? We're publishing a report over the Easter weekend, uh, so it will be available on the IPPR website. Karis, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Well, look, it's a really interesting discussion. I I think there's sort of three separate but related questions here, which is, should we have a sovereign wealth fund? How do we capitalise it? And what do we do with the money? On on the first, I'm really struck by the North Sea Oil example. You know, if we'd put the money aside, we'd now have a 500 billion fund, which we could democratically decide what to do with. But that is a big if, and how often do those things, those kind of windfalls come along? Well, that is true, although governments do sell off you know, 
4G, 5G, 6G, you know, spectrum, um, realizing our stake in RBS, you know, all of that stuff. And the question is, is there like a, a pot into which you put it for, for the long term or is it, it you just sort of spend it? Well, that's difficult, isn't it? Especially when you're talking about a country that's had this deficit and we've had these years of austerity. Mm. In a way, that's a difficult sell to say, oh, we've got this money, but we're go- not going to use it to fix these problems now. Right. We're going to make sure that future generations benefit from it, which is a good way of thinking. Yes. I think like if, if, if more governments thought about what would happen in 10 or 20 years and instead of thinking, oh, somebody else will be in government by then, it's going to be their problem. Yeah, that that would be a good thing. I mean, presumably that's what they were saying in the 1980s, well, we need to deal with these issues now. Yeah. Pay, they were paying unemployed, lots of people unemployed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so they didn't put the money aside. Mm. And then, then there's a question about how you capitalize it and there's obviously these sources that i've talked about there's also this shares idea and i, I don't know so i think you know I, I like the sound of that i can imagine that some of our listeners are going to bulk slightly at the idea of being forced by the government yeah. to uh to release more shares and, and also maybe the idea of there being this wealth that the government are deciding how should how it should be invested look there's no question that there's a certain level of controversy to that idea although you could always give companies the choice about how whether they paid it in corporation tax or in shares and the norwegian example is pretty inspiring like on climate change they're leading some of the efforts to make companies go green using their money now companies might find that more threatening but i think there is a again it's a long-term thing but i think there is a long-term case for it and then and then there's the question of what to do with the money um, as a as a borderline millennial, you should go first. Well, I, I do think something that addresses this problem that future generations won't be as wealthy as the generations that preceded them. You know th- that that sounds like the way to be thinking about it, doesn't it? I, I agree. And and you know, look, we're taking on one of the knottiest problems here. We've got massive wealth inequality, and the cascade of wealth that is going to go down the generation is going to make that worse. It's set to make it worse. And so I think what's good about this proposal is it's thinking deeply about how do you counter some of that so that, you know, you don't have young people completely priced out of the housing market, you know, only young people with like money from their parents can either afford to buy a house, set up a business, have something to fall back on. And I think that's what it's trying to address. And there's also something interesting here, which is the Labour government did set up this child trust fund uh, in 2002. It's going to come to fruition in 2020. Now, it was sort of cut off in its prime, but there'll be some people who've invested in that. And I guess we'll get to see some of the results of that idea in practice from 2020 onwards. Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We would love to hear your thoughts and ideas. You can email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at cheerfulpodcast or on Facebook. Frazzles. <laughs> we had frazzles. <laughs> Facebook. We want to know your favourite Chris. .com stroke reasons to be cheerful. What's it? <laughs> I didn't think of that one. It, it feels like you're malfunctioning. What? Like some kind the of... robot You're gone short-circuiting yeah, and you're just naming Chris. I have, sorry. Um, this comes from Amanda Summers, who says, Dear Ed and Jeff, I was especially interested in the recent episode on homelessness. I work with a community group in Derby who aim to support homeless and vulnerable people. The group goes into the city centre three evenings a week, providing hot food, clothing, and a friendly ear to those who need it. We regularly see an excess of 70 people per night, Many are homeless, uh, but the majority are vulnerable people who find once they've paid their rent, etc., have little left for food and clothing. I think this serves to illustrate how figures on homelessness are the tip of the iceberg when it comes to looking at the wider issue of poverty. Uh, at the end of the email, she adds, By the way, as someone who is allergic to both cucumber and tomatoes, I'm totally with Ed on the sandwich thing. Now, I, I, I for a long time have... Suspected that I've had a intolerance to cucumber, but people make fun of me for it. Saying, I know, but the problem is that's the problem with not having the choice of, of what you want in your sandwiches. I mean, that is that is basically my point. Because cucumbers are seventy percent water, and people say, "Well, you can't." Be I quite like cucumber and tomatoes, but that's the whole thing about individuality. They're on her um, point about homelessness, I think I think it is worth sort of underlining what what uh, Amanda's saying, which is you know there are lots of people going out there doing fantastic stuff with the homeless i I also i was at an event um last night and i I didn't realize this but a quarter of young people who are homeless are lgbt is that right yeah so it's disproportionate Uh, it was for a a benefit for the albert kennedy trust i was at um it was a showing of this play called the york realist at the dormar warehouse but you know i mean it's quite uh, you know, alarming and and striking. Figures. So relationships yeah. with families break down. Relationships with families break down, and the Albert Kennedy Trust does great work with LGBT young people. Uh, the next one is from David Bins, and the subject is: "You gave me a heart attack." LOL. Dear Ed and Jeff, I'm writing to say thank you for the show and tell you how much I love it. I listen to Pod Save America too, but I always listen to yours first. I last sent you an email just after, which is good to hear. Uh, I last sent you an email just after Christmas about my hopes for a change in the study of economics. So imagine my childlike wonder that the very first episode after Christmas was all about hopes for a change in the study of economics. With great excitement on the morning of 15th of January, I listened to your show while making a start on boarding out my loft. It's a great show as ever, but I didn't get a mention. I was stoic in the face of adversity. My wife was furious. Later that, presumably with us, later that day I had a heart attack. 
Now, I'm not saying I blame the pair of you, but at what point does correlation become causation? It's a good question. I, was I, mean, whisk- I hope we haven't got a lawsuit on our hands here. I was whisked off to Papworth, where the emergency, emergency team sucked out the offending blood clot from my right coronary, coronary artery and fitted me with two shiny new stents. I turned 40 last summer. And so, like Jeff, I'm disaffected late-generation Xer, but with no history of smoking, no excess weight beyond the usual midlife paunch. And no don't real glare. Don't look at me like that. Uh, and no real indications. I've got that problem too. And no real indications that something was amiss. It all came as a bit of a shock. I mean, we, we're obviously really pleased to hear that David is uh, recovered because he says he has um, recovered. He he goes on to say, and we thought we should definitely, you know, read out his email. But he goes on to say that his reason to be cheerful is the millennials, which I think is is great. And he's not including himself in that category, Jeff, just in case you wondered. Um, he says um, lots of things about millennials, but he says the millennials, I think, are growing up to be exceptionally good critical thinkers because they're growing up in a society world where they have to be in capitals. They need to develop abilities to sift and sort the accurate from the invented and sift and sort the relevant from the irrelevant. It's something they have to deal with every day on an ongoing basis. Well, David, really pleased to get your email, really pleased that you're um, better and really sorry that we may have contributed to your problems. Worrying about my paunch now. Yeah, well, indeed. you're making me very self-conscious. But the answer to this is for us to, you know, do these exercise, this exercise together. <laughs> <laughs> Both of us in sort of appropriate costumes, you know, yoga, it's, Pilates. Oh, this all sounds very Laurel and Hardy. It does really. Yeah, Hardy and Hardy. Um, this comes from Amelia Wilson, who says. I was recently listening to your buses episode whilst waiting and waiting and waiting for my bus to work here in Cayenne. And it got me thinking about how much less reliable so many of the services are in French Guyana than in the French Metropole. I mean, that is pretty amazing, isn't it? We've got a listener in French Guyana. Do you say Guyana? I don't know. We've, we're hedging our bets here. Oh, one yeah. of us is saying it one way, the other saying sure. them, whichever one's right. Yeah, um, yeah. She she goes on to say the education system here is severely lacking too. Provision for students beyond the age of fifteen is simply non-existent in many parts of the region, and secondary schools do not benefit from the same resources as their metropolitan counterparts. Poverty is also rife with, a, uh, rife with a significant number of people living in small shanty towns. It's scandalous to me that all of this is going on in what's supposed to be France. I'd be keen to know if it's at all similar in British overseas territories or if they're mostly tax havens exclusively populated by the very wealthy. Perhaps you could do an episode on the subject. That's an interesting question, actually, because, of course, very wealthy people, you know, they have their places in those tax havens, but very wealthy people like people to cook and clean for them and yeah. what are living conditions yeah. well, it's like a really interesting, for those people. Really interesting question. I'd also like to give a shout out to our, we have a listener in Madagascar, not that they've emailed in, but I noticed from our new statistics on ACAST, which we're in the platform we're now on, that they tell you, you're, uh, so, so does the other one, but but I was just looking at them and, and we have one listener in Madagascar, so I'd love to know who they are. Maybe they can email in. Maybe we can come and visit. Yeah, exactly. Um, the next one is also from overseas, Wendelin Donnan. Good morning, Ed and Jeff. I've been listening to your podcast here in wintry Waldheim. I hope that's spelled, uh, pronounced right. Saskatchewan, that's Canada, and enjoy it immensely. I am completely against goop. I like the idea of the MYO sandwich idea, and there was a setup similar to this in the cafe near where I worked about 15 years ago. Unfortunately, this is grist to your mill, Jeff. It was stopped due to occupational health and safety issues. <laughs> uh, this shop employed recovering ed- addicts, students looking for work experience, and the underemployed. I love this idea and would make every effort to go to the shop, even though I could have made my own lunch at home. It's a good thing. Thank you, Muchly. Wendelin. 
You see, look, it's a big movement out there. The common thread seems to be, we've had a lot of email now from people who say, there used to be a place like this near me, but it closed down. It collapsed. Yeah. Due to either (laughs) health or economic issues. Do you think frazzles have ever, (laughs) do you think they've ever kind of come across sort of bacon or pigs? I don't think so. I think uh, most of those things. Or engineered flavour. Yeah, you have to check, but most of them have suitable for vegetarians. Really? On them. Yeah, most of them, not all of them. How do you feel about crisps on a sandwich? Definitely not. But would on you... the side, maybe, but not on the sandwich. No, it's a layer, then you press it down, get oh, a nice no, little crunch. I don't think so. That's why you need to make your own. Email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. So we are on our trip to Vienna and we're sitting in, I can't ever remember sitting in a more spectacular office, can you? It's nicer than mine. <laughs> it's much nicer than yours, no, no offence. I mean, you've been oh, in the, the... biscuits are nicer than mine as well, actually. You've been in the Oval Office. I mean, this, this has got to be nicer than the Oval Office, right? It competes with the Oval Office. It's the most incredible office. It's in City Hall in Vienna and it is the office of Jürgen Czernohorski. Now, have I said that right? Yes, it's like chair, no horse and key. You've made it very easy for English speakers because you have it broken down phonetically on your on your Twitter page. Yeah, because it's also also hard for Austrian people to to pronounce it correctly. But this is office is stunning. There's a dartboard on the wall, but an electronic fancy one. You've got a guitar over there. You've got a beautiful neon sign. We should say what your neon sign spells out. Just spell it out for us in and 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 then say what it means. Okay, in German it's verändern wir die Welt. And in English, that would mean uh, let's change the world, which is basically doing politics. It's good. So one of the things we wanted to talk to you about is Vienna, because you are uh, obviously have a position of responsibility within the government here. And Vienna has been named the best place to live for eight years in a row. We are very proud of it. Yeah, I bet you are. Rightly. Why? Poor, I don't mean I, why are you proud. Why, why, is, <laughs> why has it been named the best place to live for, for all the, that time? Well, I think there are hundreds of reasons, but the most important thing is you, you can live in a great way in, in every city in the world when you are well off. And uh, the great thing about Vienna is you can live there and love it there and work there and have an affordable uh, rent uh, when you're a worker or when you're just um, not winner of, of social bingo. So in a way, you're bucking the trend for all of these capital cities around the world, like New York, Paris, London, where you've got to be rich for it to be anything other than a difficult life. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of our most important political goals to work for a city where you can feel at home uh, in every district and in every, every place and every region and I mean, it's hard work, but I think um, working for a city that is not falling apart is, is one of the most important things to do. And one of the things that stands out, and you mentioned it, is housing. More than 80% of residents in Vienna rent. I think about 60% live in municipal or publicly subsidized housing. Um, tell us more about how this housing scheme works. First of all, it's really it's a tradition. Vienna is famous for the period of Red Vienna, it's uh, from, from the, the ending of the, of the First World War to the beginning of the fascist uh, states yeah. in 1934. And that was a period when, uh, when Viennese politicians decided to raise money and put it into as many affordable flats as possible. 
and uh, we, we kept on doing that. At this time, uh, 60% of the Viennese people live in um, municipal flats or uh, publicly subsidized flats. And on top of that, there are rent caps. There is a system of rent controls for the, for the private markets as well. And just on this question of rent caps in the private sector, because there's a debate about this in Britain, does that work? Because some people would say, well, that means the private sector won't have any incentive to provide the housing, landlords won't want to provide the housing if there's rent caps and so on. In my point of view, it, it works perfectly well. I mean, Vienna is, is a fast-growing city, so there is uh, the necessity to build, and it works, and the private companies build, and the city builds. It's true that 8 out of 10 newly built flats in this year are in some way subsidized by the city. So that's a really huge part of work done by ourselves. But basically, it's a, it's a relatively low percentage of people's income that people are paying in rent compared to London or... On, on average, the uh, Viennese pay up to 25% of the right. household income for, right. for living. Much more reasonable. And can you tell us about the Viennese and maybe the Austrian attitude towards home ownership? I mean, is it, it's just not considered in the same way as it is in the UK? I don't know why. I think most of all, there are two reasons... Uh, why so many people rent their their flats. First of all, it's so expensive to buy a flat. And second is it's safe to rent one because the prices don't go up very, very quickly in, 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 in 10 or 20 or 30 years. So it's just, I mean, it's a calculation. And most of the people add and think it's it's easier to rent. Tell us what else is good about Vienna. Because, you know, it's not just the housing that people have focused on. Tell us some of the other things that you're, you're proudest of, which you think has meant that you've won this award so many years in a row. Compared to other metropolitan areas, the level of segregation is, is low and the, and the quality of public schools um, is very high. And that is, uh, I think it's another reason why uh, Viennese tend to love their region, their district where they live, because it's it's great all over the uh, And how have you managed that integration? Because I know that's one of your responsibilities is around integration. Is that because of the housing or is it because of wider attempts at integration? I would say everything's interlinked uh, and it's a really big challenge because Vienna is is, uh, fast growing and and definitely there are areas with uh, a much higher percentage of of, of pupils having to learn German and uh, having parents that are not able to to help them with it. But as there are no real no-go areas like suburbs or gated communities in Vienna, it's, it's also the school that is rather well mixed. But something amazing here is a consistency of government. So the Social Democrats have been in power in Vienna for, for how long? Yeah, whenever there was dem- democracy, there were Social Democrats in Vienna. Since 1945, since the end of yeah, the Second World War. Yeah, from 1919 to 1934 and from, from 1945 till the present day. I mean, apart from good government and all that, what explains Social Democratic success? Maybe it's something very, for people in Vienna, it's something very normal. Um, things tend not to break down. Public transport system, the, uh, the, the tram system, supply, yeah. the tram system. It's very easy to uh, and very very cheap to come uh, from point A to point B because it's uh, an annual ticket is uh, uh, costs only one euro per day. 
um, for the whole public transport system. So Vienna is basically it's a, just a good place to, to live. I know you're about to come to London. Air quality is a massive problem in London. Is there anything we should learn from what you're doing in Vienna? Yeah, I mean Vienna. First of all, which is hard to 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 uh, organize when it's when it's not the case already. But first of all, Vienna is very green, and in the last hundred years, we managed to preserve uh, the parks and the the woods, even if there was more and more pressure on on housing capacity. Then um, Vienna is a city of uh, short distances and a very good public transport system and uh, low uh, housing costs. That, leads to the fact that there is not, not that much commuting because people can live inside the city and work in the city so they can use the public transport uh, to, to go from A to B. So, so while we're here, I mean, uh, our trip to Vienna is very short, but we want to we find a good coffee house. Where do you recommend? Well, uh, if you want to have it in walking distance, as Vienna is the, is the city of walking distances, it's just over the place here. It's Café Eiles. Basically, it used to be my office for 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> we shall go off there and have a, a coffee, won't Absolutely. we? Absolutely. You should. And have some Apfelstrudel. Oh, definitely. Jürgen, thank you so much for joining us. It's so great to, to talk to you. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, we mentioned at the beginning of the episode that we'd had our first successful trip away together, and we're, we're going to be on the road a hell of a lot this year, you and I. We are. We are. You've got a list of our uh, upcoming engagements in front of you. So, um, it's just been announced that we are doing Latitude on Sunday the 15th of July. I'm so excited about that. I know, you wanted a free ticket to Latitude, so that you decided you'd have, to, you'd have to do a show there. Yeah, you? yeah, and it worked. Uh, uh, have you been to that festival before? I have once as Climate Change Secretary, yeah. It's, fun. it's such a lovely festival, and they have um, uh, uh, sheep. Sheep. In, at the festival, yeah. Maybe we can get the sheep involved. Right. There are some tickets left for Bristol on Friday, April the 13th. Uh, we're in Sheffield on Friday, April the 27th. Uh, as I say, we're doing Latitude. We're also going to be doing the Lunar Festival. That's on Saturday, 28th of July in Tamworth. We're going to be doing Edinburgh on that first weekend, uh, Saturday and Sunday, the 4th and 5th of August. And there are a few other dates within, within the next few months that we'll be announcing soon as well. We should buy a van. True. <laughs> What would, what would we we'd have what, our face on it or something? Yeah, like emblazoned on the side. Yeah, lads on tour. Yeah, we should have got lads on tour T-shirts for our trip to Austria. Really, I don't think we're really lads. No, I don't think we, we really are. Yeah. Uh, I just doesn't quite sort of you know. You don't drink. Uh, you know, I'm really square. I mean, I just I think I think we're quite a long way from lads on tour. I hate to be the sort of party pooper here. But. Uh, so we should thank our guests this week. Who were? Angela Carmine, author of Citizens Wealth, Karis Roberts, research fellow at the IPPR. And also Jürgen Czernohorski from Vienna. Follow him on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just look up Czernohorski. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed did the music. James Deacon made our idents. Bumped into him this morning, actually. Oh, good. Yeah, he's about to become a father again for the second time. Oh, good. How are his idents? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, he's clearly identified. Yeah. Uh, and Emily Power made our artwork. Emma Caution produced our podcast with backup and research by Alex Vice Price and Lindsay Todd. He's been a cheesy what's it? He's been a week crunchy. He's <laughs> a fiend. Reasons to be frazzled. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. 
Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50-80% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.